Ovid's Flea by PJ Edgel. Episode 2. Henry. Henry woke up suddenly. He was lying on the rug, just short of the bed in a pool of drool. The morning birds ridiculously cheerful, their chirping shrill, piercing his throbbing head. He sat up, wiping his mouth with his hand. He saw the open window and remembered trying to shoot at Julian. There was no sign of Viola. Viola! He waited for a response. Damn it, Viola! You better come here! No answer. He got up and stumbled to the bathroom, his head pounding. Finding Advil in the medicine cabinet, he took five. Stumbled to the bed and put a pillow over his head to silence the birds. He woke again a few hours later, 9 a.m. Where the hell was Viola? He was late for work. Edward opened, but still, he was the boss. His head throbbed, but his rage pulsed. He started throwing clothes and ammunition into a bag, forming a plan. Viola might have had a bunch of degrees and all, but he knew he was smarter. He could only surmise she had gone with Julian. She was rarely late from her job, and she always had breakfast on the table and him awake by 7 a.m. Obviously, she had left assuming he wouldn't care. It would never come after her. She never did understand that he loved her and, and knew what was best for her and his family. The problem had always been that she didn't listen. She did get that New York stubbornness with a glint of superiority about her education. And the only way to reason was to knock some sense into her. He knew where she was and where she'd taken his son. New York. You didn't need a college degree to figure that one out. She'd go to her friend Kimberly since her mama was dead. She wouldn't figure on him knowing how her mind works or on the fact that he'd remember how to get into the house the back way. She'd shown him where the extra key was hidden. Folks don't tend to change things like that. The only problem he might encounter was that bitch Kimberly. And if that happened, he'd just knock her out and lock her in a closet. Then he'd escort Viola and Julian to the car and drive back home. It was that easy. It just wasn't what he'd planned to do this weekend. He called Ed at the shop and told him he'd be there soon. Five minutes later, his cell phone rang. Henry here. Henry, it's Pastor Jenner. I'm here at the shop. I thought you were meeting me here at 8.30. I'm in a right mess with my car. I'm here, but they're telling me they can't help me till Monday. And I've got a funeral, a wedding. Pastor, I got you. I'll be there shortly and... You can have my car for the weekend, and I'm headed out of town, and I just rebuilt old Pickett's car that his widow gave me. I can drive that, so mine's free. Henry liked to keep the pastor in his debt. Well, I sure do appreciate it, Henry. I can't be without a car. God bless you. You're a good man. 6.45 p.m. Mark glanced at the clock. If he pulled in the driveway within the next ten minutes, he'd see his kids and have a good dinner with Julia. And life would purr. 
as long as Julia was happy, and that consisted of the right amount of attention mixed with flattery, jewelry, and devotion to the family, he was allowed to be happy. It was crazy, but he actually liked it this way. There was an order to everything, and within it, he found freedom. Within discipline, you find freedom, his favorite professor had lectured. And once he'd cracked that code, he'd found out the old guy was right. Once you knew and followed the rules, you could find the loopholes and know how far to go outside of the rules. And Mark knew how to push the boundaries. 6.53 p.m. He pulled the jag into the driveway. 6.54 p.m. He walked into the house with his briefcase and flowers for Julia. 6.57 p.m. He kissed Julia, received the requisite squeal for the flowers, and headed up the stairs to kiss the kids goodnight. He'd heard the nanny say, it sounds as if daddy is home. As he walked into his son Dylan's room, the nanny straightened up and stepped aside so he could get to his son's bed. Daddy, can we work on my kicks this weekend? I can't this weekend, sport. I'm going to New York. Daddy has some things he needs to take care of. But I'll tell you what, depending upon what time I get home Sunday, we can either do it then or Monday night. We'll do it before dinner. Deal? Deal. Mark kissed his son and left the room, noticing the look the nanny gave him. It was tempting, but he doubted he'd have time between now and his flight tomorrow morning to do anything about the nanny. He put it in the back of his mind as he said goodnight to Jake, his second son, and then peeked in on Sasha, his 10-month-old daughter, before heading down to dinner with Julia. Jesse. The day seemed endless. Work, kids, the endless to-do of being a parent. Jesse loved every minute of it. Looking into his daughter's eyes, his heart would pull and break a little. His precious three-year-old, going on 30, he would try not to laugh at her proclamations about things. Daddy, that simply can't be true, she would say about some made-up explanation he gave her when she questioned things. Where did she learn that sophisticated sentence pattern, he marveled. His son was equally a wonder to him. Two years older than his daughter, he was all boy, a whirlwind constantly on the move. He wasn't at all like Jesse, and Jesse loved him for that. But he felt sad that his son had inherited one trait of his, a deathly allergy to bee stinks. The doctor seemed to think that he might outgrow it, but one fearful trip in an ambulance when he was not quite a year had made Jesse sad that he had failed his son and given him a life that would be marked by a distinct fear of buzzing noises. When he tucked them in at night, he would ask them about their day, find out their little troubles, and, and then he would say, just remember to always be true to yourself. Always be happy. They would look at him puzzled, but their little minds didn't hold a question long as sleep would overtake them. He would stand with Annie and watch them and try not to cry. But the joy of his life never reached its full potential. It would be attacked by a sting of despair that rose up out of a layer of constant misery. It buzzed around the brink of his joy, daring him to jump. But Jesse was afraid to swat it in case he fell fully into its venom. Kimberly, there were things that she just did herself. Didn't matter how successful Kimberly had become, she just did certain things herself and remained ultimately in control. Since Vi left, it had been her burden alone to do things right. The last appointment was out the door. 
which meant Kimberly had about three to four hours to herself before the girls began checking back in. She rarely booked herself anymore. She averaged about once every six months or so. She hadn't felt like going on a job in forever. And as owner, you didn't have to. There were no interesting Johns left. Even the creme de la creme were dull. Princes and CEOs and European gentlemen were boring. Kimberly was usually better read, which made dinner conversation dull, and there was nothing new in sex. So all in all, she was bored. Her hallmark had been that she'd never come off as fake. But her exhaustion with life made her hesitant to take jobs. She didn't have the energy to fake not faking. That's it. That's what I hate about my face. I look fake. Done. Worked on. Kimberly studied herself in the mirror. They had had rules, she and Vi. Silly friendship rules. But at the time, they hadn't seemed silly. No drugs. No plastic surgery on the face. No guns or violence and countless others that she was pretty sure she'd broken. Some out of necessity, some out of anger. A secret vengeance against Viola for abandoning her. A gun had been out of necessity. A violent John had attempted to force her into doing things she'd refused. She talked him out of it, thankful for her psychology degree. But after telling Tommy, he had suggested she buy a gun and learn how to use it. So she did, becoming an excellent markswoman and secretly proud of her ability. She wondered what Viola would have said about that. But since Viola started the trend of breaking their friendship rules, Kimberly surmised, it was her fault anyway. Vi, after all, had broken the cardinal one. Getting married to anyone from out of state especially 20 hours away, especially a John, and most importantly, someone who uses y'all as part of a sentence. She stared at herself and watched his tears welled up on the bottom lid and spilled over down a too smooth eye socket. The tear followed the condor of her face, but where at her age it should have caught the track of a subtle line from her nose to her mouth, her laugh lines from a life fulfilled. The doctor had called it the nasal labial fold. It fell straight downward off her face and onto her bust. She watched the track of the tear and decided perfection was overrated. Kimberly often wondered why her mother had never figured it out. And as she poured herself a glass of wine, she laughed, knowing the reason. It had nothing to do with her. Her mother was the original and taught her everything she'd ever known about being self-absorbed. Kimberly always felt herself to be a poor copy by comparison. She'd never been particularly close to her mother. They'd never shared those mother-daughter bonding moments. Though when Kimberly's father was alive, they'd faked it for his sake. Kimberly had always been a daddy's girl. She instinctively felt her mother wasn't particularly happy to have her third child be a girl. She preferred to be the only woman the men around her worshipped, 
So when a pretty little girl came into the picture who grew into a beauty, the competition had begun in earnest. That is, until Kimberly realized her mother's issues and bowed out of the competition. When her father died suddenly when she was 20, Kimberly played the dutiful daughter and allowed her mother the full stage as the grieving widow, keeping her heartbreak inside. And she'd never let it out again. She shut down that part of herself that a man should have accessed, deciding somewhere deep inside that it was better to seal that fault than have it open for possible violation or destruction. After her father's death, Kimberly and her mother had stopped pretending to be the mother-daughter combo that made her father happy and barely spoke. Except for one day out of the year, Johnny's anniversary. That, and in preparation for the Jewish holidays, were about the only time her mother called. But her mother's remarriage seven years ago had changed all that. Kimberly had come to terms with the fact that her stepfather was the love of her mother's life, and without realizing it, had turned her bitchy mother into somewhat of a real person. Even though she admired the change, it was too late. Kimberly wasn't looking for a cozy mommy relationship. Miss Jean, Vi's mom, had become her real mother. Now with her father and Miss Jean gone, She considered herself an orphan. She was polite to her biological mother. She listened when she called and tried as much as she could to be a daughter to her, but she knew she'd never have the relationship her mother now wanted. Johnny's anniversary always ushered in her mother's period of obsession about Kimberly's single state, complete with questions that ranged from Johnny's mental state at the time of his death to Kimberley's, and since the advent of voyeuristic television, questions on Kimberly's sexuality. She'd nearly choked on a coffee when her mother asked her if she was a lesbian. It had taken all her self-control not to answer. Only when paid, she glanced at the walls. Those were real diplomas up there. She'd kept her knowledge in her chosen field of psychology up to date. I mean, it's not like I don't psychoanalyze people every day. When she was active in her own business, it was the Johns. Now it was the girl she employed. She knew she was becoming a recluse, but didn't know how to stop it. She decided to take a nap. She had no plans, and she hadn't been sleeping well anyway. She started to read the American Journal of Psychology, knowing in her current mood it would put her to sleep. And before long, her eyes drooped and she removed her glasses and slid into the couch. But sleep wasn't the respite she hoped for. The dream returned. Now it was invading the sacred space of naps. She felt its familiar beginning and tried to get out of it to wake herself up, but it was useless. It was always the same. Kimberly would be reclining half-naked in a doctor's chair as two doctors consult over her face and breasts for an upcoming plastic surgery. There are lines drawn where they plan to cut and a big red heart is drawn on her chest. One doctor is Viola and the other is Johnny. Again, 
In the beginning of the dream, she assumes she's in a doctor's office. And then halfway through the dream, she realizes she's on subway tracks. For a selfish bitch such as Miss Simon, we would cut here to make her appear smarter than she really is. The other doctor, Viola, has a much warmer bedside manner and is always kind, smiling as she disputes Johnny. Oh, Dr. Johnny, I think you're misreading our client. She has a lot of compassion, so I would cut here. Johnny's response is always a hysterical scream, the same screaming, hysterical voice from their last conversation. Dr. Viola, I'm sorry, but I believe you're mistaken. She's a selfish, self-centered bitch. The tone is the same as a conversation all those years ago. Kimberly pleads with him. Johnny, please understand. It's just a joke. If we can pull it off, it's just the biggest joke. Not on you, but on society. Don't you get it? Shut up! What do you know about the society of decent people? As I was saying, Dr. V, for a selfish, self-absorbed bitch such as Kimmy here, she deserves to be cut here. And at that point, Johnny takes a scalpel and attempts to plunge the scalpel into the center of the heart shape to drawn over her own heart. But Viola, in one movement, puts her arm over Kimberly and swoops her off the table. They run down the tracks, jumping, practically flying, to avoid an oncoming number nine train. But Johnny, chasing them, runs into the oncoming train as the horn blows. Kimberly woke with a start. The horn of the train in real life becoming her ringing phone. Hello? Hi, dear. It's Mom. Did I wake you? Sounds like you had a rough day. Tough clients? There it was. And it never ceased to amaze Kimberly that in 15 years, her mother had never caught on to what she really did. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they just really take it out of you. What's up, Mom? Well, dear, I'm just sad. I mean, you of all people know what today is, and I just never know what to think. And you think I do. Mom, I... Wait a second. My other line's ringing. Hello? Ooh, you sound rough. Tough day at the office, dear? In spite of it all, Kimberly smiled. There was nothing like Tommy to cheer her up. Oh, thank God it's you. My mom's on the other line, and... Oh, give my best to your mother. I'll let you go. Call me. No. Do not go anywhere. I'm getting rid of her. There was no way Kimberly was sitting through a conversation with her mother, discussing the state of her life and the 13th anniversary of Johnny's suicide. She dispensed with her with the promise to call her in the morning and return to Tommy. I had the dream again. She woke me up from it and then wanted to start talking about Johnny. Every year it's the same. Why do you think he did it? What was your last conversation with him? You really should call his family. It doesn't matter after all these years. You should have married him. I'm telling you, Tommy, I can't take it. And when I have the dream, it always makes me miss Fi. Tommy, where is she? How come she stopped calling or returning calls? Life sucks. Whoa! This was just a wanna-come-to-dinner phone call. I'm not giving therapy to the therapist. I'm sorry to dump on you. I just... Kimberly felt ashamed. 
Ironically, only Vi ever knew what to do with her in these moods. I'm kidding. It's okay. Why don't we discuss it over dinner? Listen, I know you're waiting for the girls to get back, so Jerry and I will bring over dinner, and you will break out some excellent wine. In the meantime, I will answer your question, or at least give you my opinion. Vi stopped calling, because you and Miss Jean were right. She should have never married him, and it's some sort of a disaster, and she's got too much pride to come back. Chew on that, sweetie. We'll see you in half an hour. Henry. It had been a busy day at the shop. Now here it was, 7 p.m., and he had another hour of paperwork. And he was bone tired. He'd thrown his bag into old Pickett's car and his rifle wrapped in a blanket. He put it in a trunk under a mat. He did it all out back behind the shop before driving his own car around the front and giving the keys to Pastor Jennings. So what kind of business or pleasure you got that's going to make you miss my sermon this Sunday? Henry knew the safest way to answer that question. Just some unavoidable family stuff, Pastor. A reunion? Uh, kinda. Will your wife and son be joining you? I'd sure like to see them at church someday. I, Henry knew he had to end this. Pastor Jennings could maneuver a conversation through ten topics, and an hour of your life would be gone. As a matter of fact, I'm picking them up. Here's the keys, and I'm blessed that you'll be driving it, Pastor. Henry handed Pastor Jennings the car keys and quickly walked towards the shop and his office. He lost another half an hour to the pastor as he'd come back with a question about the car. He stared at the clock, and he'd never get out tonight, and damn, no dinner either? He'd hit a diner on the way home, sleep, then leave in the morning. As long as he was back Sunday night, it was fine. Viola. Viola and Julian started on the road around 2 a.m., having slept most of their first day of freedom away. Viola was anxious to get on the road and get to New York. They still had at least 10 hours of driving ahead of them, which she guessed with rest would really be 15 or so, which would put her at her mother's at the perfect time, just before dinner. The air on her corn-rolled head, now without wig or baseball cap, felt good. She dumped her wig in a trash can after she'd abandoned the car in a seedy part of Oxford. She'd gone alone as Julian had convinced her he wanted to do some final chores at home so as not to arouse his dad's suspicion, or that's what she believed he meant. She hoped the car by now would be stripped beyond recognition. Jesse. He woke before the alarm clock and stared at the ceiling. He could hear the water lapping against the dock and the dull buzz of the bees that had invaded his property. His thoughts went to the days ahead. Clandestine was the word that popped into his head. He liked the word. It was romantic and somewhat archaic. It appealed to him. He was going to make this weekend romantic. It was already clandestine. Mark was tall, athletic, and ridiculously handsome. He was funny, too. A sarcastic wit that could be harsh at times, but Jesse knew he was softening up. He could tell. 
because Mark would tussle his hair or squeeze his shoulder in his frat boy way. There was the beginning of affection, and from affection, he knew it would grow. Annie rolled onto her stomach, and her hand went across his midriff possessively. Her diamond caught a ray of the rising sun through a crack in the curtain. Lately, that sappy song from the 80s had been the soundtrack in his head. The one about being torn between lovers, breaking rules, etc. Though he couldn't figure out if he felt like a fool. Was it foolish to love two people of the opposite sex? They each spoke to a part of him. Why not? While the weeks with Mark began adding up, the heart of his marriage seemed to intensify. Annie needed him. She clung to him as the stillborn anniversary approached. The basis of their marriage was mutual worship, born from emotional rescue. That's how it had begun, anyway, and it had grown nicely. They were connected. Emotional osmosis, where they felt each other's feelings. It gave them an intimacy that made people envious. Even with the growing feelings for Mark, that hadn't diminished because it fit into the one part of him he'd never shared with her. Jesse had never been successful at rule-breaking. It had never been his thing. He, he liked to know where everything was and what was coming next, and he liked guidelines. No surprises. Jesse was by the book, neat, organized, and fastidious. It was a direct reaction to his past of the wild years. The years spent wandering around the jungles of New York, living only within the rules of a whim. Hence, now he demanded order. In the first years of their marriage, it had driven Annie crazy. She was of the reckless, artist sort, and it worked for her. She made sense out of everything messy and delivered gold no matter what she had started with. This was true of everything in her life, not just her art, but absolutely everything, including him. Jesse had been a mess when he met Annie, the remnants of a, another person, another life, a life in the jungle. He had just run away from that chaos when they met in New York 12 years ago. Annie had rescued him, made him make sense of the experience, or what she knew of it. Full disclosure had felt too disruptive and messy, and he knew when he'd found her, he'd never leave. In her, he found a peace of sorts, a safe home, a resting place, a warm and fuzzy cage. Why leave? He'd always thought, but one look at Mark and all rational thoughts had left him. Jesse became an addict and tried to bend the rules. He looked at the clock. He had to get up or he'd miss his flight. He was breaking out of the fuzzy cage. Just for a while, anyway. Happiness had become an impossible myth as far as he was concerned. His two parts would never be simultaneously happy. He'd tried many times to kill that other part of himself, or at least... He hoped to put that part into a deep sleep, the part that despised the fuzzy cage, the part that whispered, coward, in his head. That was his old self, the party boy, the it boy of Chelsea. The boy still had some power and could never be truly destroyed. Instead, he would merely nap, then wake up hungry. Restless, the boy would try and destroy the golden fuzzy happiness, making Jesse put everything he'd built at risk. The boy would taunt him, and before he knew where he was, the boy would lead him to a rest stop, an anonymous sex shop or alley. For an hour or more, the boy would reign, 
grabbing as much as he could, and then Jesse would come back to himself, squelching the boy with his shame. He would return home, a perfect husband, bowing to Annie, his queen, desperately trying to close the door, secure the lock, and get the cage on sturdy ground again. But since Mark entered his life, he had no choice but to rock the cage on its precarious precipice, fearing and yet hoping that the cage door would swing open forever, knocking his existence into another stratosphere. Jesse was dressed and ready to leave quickly. Divided, he, he kissed the sleeping Annie with enough passion. He couldn't resist. He had to ask, you won't forget. <sighs> He's coming this morning, I promise. By the time you come back, the nest will be gone and we'll be able to sit at the dock again. He moved away from her sheepishly. She sat up as he reached the door and with a sweeter and seductive voice made a proposition. How about a date Sunday night? We'll drink some wine on the dock? She liked to orchestrate these romantic settings. I'd like that, he said, and shut the door. The boy snorted. It is all true, Jessie protested. I would like that, and I do love her. But the boy would not be silent and responded, Well, you say you love Mark, and you want to spend the rest of your life with him. I love you, Jessie heard her say through the door, and he returned it with his. I love you too. See you Sunday night. He checked the kids and left. Annie. She rolled over and tried not to feel bad that she'd snapped at Jesse. She had felt his woundedness and never liked him to leave that way, soft and exposed. She heard his car start and the garage door open and close as he pulled out of the driveway. It was useless. She felt bad and wanted to run after him to apologize. She knew he'd be fine. She knew she'd repair the damage outwardly, that she'd sent him off to his conference hole, but now she was fractured inside. She didn't understand what was wrong. She'd had mood swings from hell of late. He never seemed to mind. It was a little sick, but she enjoyed the power. Actually, she did know what was wrong, but didn't want to admit it to herself. Never mind Jessie. It was that time of year when the dream started, but this time it had a twist. Johnny was holding the baby, playing with her dead son, being the doting uncle. He would smile and wave at her as the sound she hated most in the world, the sound of the pulleys lowering a casket, would carry them both smiling away. The sound had become Jesse's alarm clock waking him for his trip. She hated the sound, she hated the alarm clock, and for an instant, she hated Jesse, leaving her alone this weekend. It wasn't the baby's anniversary. That was in two weeks. It was Johnny's. A date he barely knew because he didn't know her brother. But a date all the same that made her need him, that made her ache. When he'd brought up the conference, she thought about telling him he couldn't go, exercising her powers. But she didn't have the heart. Since they'd met 12 years before, she'd always had that power over him. It came with the territory of salvation, she'd learned. Annie tried to remember when she tapped into the power and realized it had always been a part of their relationship. 
From the minute she'd met him, he had clung to her like a drowning man, and she had fallen for his neediness and set up her throne firmly in his life. In the beginning, he'd call her his queen, and in the crazy days of first love, he would carry around the apartment, calling her, Your Majesty. But that ended, and as they became more solid in the relationship, he just assumed the role of her protector, and the footing became more equal. He became her king, but she knew how and when to call the queen back when she needed her. Annie gave up on sleep and sat up in the bed, pulling the covers up so that it covered her naked breasts. She pulled her knees up, hugging them. She liked to think in that position. She thought about the day ahead. She didn't like weekends without Jessie. She liked her husband with her. She liked to show him off. Even after 10 years of marriage, she felt that way. She never grew tired of his good looks and his attention to his body. He still had the swimmer's build, but now with age, it was even better. No more boy, all man. And even though he was not a giant, about five feet nine or 10, he still towered above her tiny frame. She liked the way they looked together. They were striking and she knew it. His blonde athletic looks contrasted to her petite Asian frame and features. She was mixed, part Chinese and Japanese, which she assumed had been the reason her Japanese mother had given her up. She had good, adopted parents and had never thought she was anything different than the Jewish girl from Westchester she was raised to be, until recently, when her children were born and displayed recessive gene traits from where she didn't know. And now, strange things were showing up in her art. She reached for a book on her nightstand. The kids wouldn't be up for another hour. She'd read for a bit and then call Jesse before his flight took off. She knew he'd be fine, but she needed to hear his voice. Next time on Ovid's Flea. He was the closest thing to a friend. Never had he ever had such a clandestine meeting. He wanted no interruptions. His attention needed to be on the business at hand. Ovid's Flea is voiced by Patrick Brewis, Anita Charlesier, Pat Jones, Dan Johnson, Harry Wetzel, Reed Winfrey, and C.N. Yates. It is executive produced by Pavan Muzumdar with Jonathan Moises, C.N. Yates, and Pat Jones in conjunction with Arden Park Productions, LLC. The sound engineer is Nicholas Sapunos, and the sound was designed by Nicholas Sapunos and Pat Jones. Ovid's Fleet was made possible by the generosity of independent sponsors as well as those through Kickstarter. The music is licensed through Grey Bliss Music or is a property of Arden Park Productions. Special thanks goes to Monica, Andrew, and Sophia Moore, Polish Scouting Studios, and Anya Brozda, and Rick Gomes. To find out more about the world of Ovid's Flea, go to ovidsflea.com.